Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Forensic pathologists have long been fascinating television characters. CSI shows cutting-edge labs which are spacious and free of clutter. In these labs, murders are solved in 60 minutes, minus commercial breaks. Remember Quincy M.E.? This television show featured Jack Klugman as a medical examiner. The show ran for eight seasons and received multiple Primetime Emmy Award nominations. But life in an actual medical examiner's office doesn't resemble the TV version. On this episode of Sound Practice, we explore forensic pathology and the state of medical examiner offices across our country. Next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Bruce Goldfarb. He is an award winning writer. For 10 years, Bruce served as executive assistant to the chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. His forthcoming book is OCME Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center. Bruce Goldfarb. Welcome to Sound Practice. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. So, Bruce, how did a nice writer like you end up in a place like the office of chief medical examiner? Well, uh, it was just uh, the way things turned out. I, I had a, a background in journalism, but before then, I was an emergency medical technician and had been around medicine and healthcare uh, much of my uh younger life up until getting my degree at University of Maryland, and then sort of uh, switched over to journalism. And when the opportunity presented itself to, uh, I, I knew that the OCME of Maryland was a, uh, a celebrated place. It was well known and, and had this reputation. I didn't know all what it was all about, but it, it just, you know, the opportunity presented itself and I was uniquely suited for it. And it was an, an amazing experience and um, an extraordinary privilege. Please give me a sense of the daily activities of the office of the chief medical examiner. What are the duties of the office? How many employees are there? Kind of just give me a general feel for the place. Well, the OCME of Maryland is a statewide agency for one thing. It's a, uh, Maryland has a centralized uh, agency and uh, basically, the Forensic Medical Center of Maryland operates as a hospital for dead people, uh, is basically what it is. And uh, as you probably know, about 80% of people die in hospitals um, or nursing homes or hospice, uh, and uh, they're known to have some illness and they get progressively worse than they die. So the primary care doctor, their attending physician signs a death certificate, but about 20% of people die under other circumstances where they're, they're, they didn't show up for work, they die from injury or, or violence or uh, unknown circumstances, they're just found dead somewhere. And so somebody needs to sign that death certificate. So you need to actually diagnose that person and uh, uh, determine the cause and manner of death. So that's what the medical examiner does uh, for uh, those unexpected sudden deaths. So your book, and I, I, I think it's fair to say, in, in parts, paints a, a grim portrait of the state of the office of chief medical examiner. Can you explain some of the problems faced by the office? 
Well, it's not just the OCME of Maryland. There is a very severe nationwide crisis in forensic medicine. Uh, there's a severe shortage of forensic pathologists. Um, the uh, forensic pathology uh, typically is in uh, the public sector. They work for governments. And so they're not uh, compensated as well as the private sector is. Um, the uh, we have been through several years of, there seems to be a sentiment of, um, you know, shrinking government and, uh, and uh, the public health system, uh, particularly after two years of a, of a pandemic, has really been stretched to its limits. Uh, and uh, a decade of a, um, an opioid epidemic that has just uh, uh, caused a, you know, a rising tide of uh, those drug-related deaths, and it's really stressed the system. So, you know, a combination of an increasing caseload, uh, reduced workforce, reduced funding, uh, reduced attention by the public and by government. And so, um, you know, and, and that's under the best of circumstances. Half the country uh, isn't even served by uh, medical examiners, by, you know, well-trained forensic pathologists. There's only about 400, 450 forensic pathologists in the entire country. Uh, and the uh, National Association of Medical Examiners uh, estimates that we need right now today, you know, 1,000 to 1,200 just to uh, handle, you know, current needs throughout the country. It doesn't seem uh, overly dramatic to say that we have a crisis. There is a very severe crisis. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, people are, uh, autopsies uh, either aren't being done, um, they're delayed. Uh, the reports are delayed, and it seems like an administrative thing to produce an autopsy report, but, um, you know, everything hangs in the balance. Everything is on, on hold during that time period. So, you know, not only is a family uh, grieving and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, on tenterhooks waiting for the cause and manner of death, but, uh, you know, life insurance benefits don't get paid out, burial benefits, uh, survivor benefits from Social Security, investigations, criminal investigations, uh, uh, civil litigation, investigations by Child Protective Services. There may be other people who are at risk in these cases. And so, um, yeah, it is a very, very serious crisis throughout the country. You mentioned compensation. Are these salaried positions most places or are examiners ever compensated by by the work by the autopsy but i i know about maryland and many other places uh, the medical examiners are staff doctors um that are uh, salaried professionals uh they do hire some some of the slack is picked up by per diems who come in and, and work by the day um from other the jurisdictions, uh, and they get paid, uh, I believe, by the case. Uh, and uh, in in places where, you know, I mentioned about half the country is on the coroner system. So I was recently in a, in a Midwest state where um, there's a community that uh, the closest forensic pathologist is a eight hour drive away. So, uh, you know, that that person in those sorts of circumstances, that person I would imagine would be compensated by you know per case when they're when they're cons uh, consulted on it. 
It is interesting. You're you're in Maryland. I'm in the state of Indiana. We we elect coroners by by the county, and there's no requirement that they have any medical training uh, whatsoever. Oftentimes, right. we have people that are funeral directors that are elected uh, county coroner. It's not unique to Indiana. That is actually quite common. Uh, and uh, there's uh, uh, 13 states where that are still strictly in coroners. Uh, 23 states have medical examiners. Uh, 16 of those are statewide agencies like Maryland. Uh, there's 14 states where you find like New York uh, and, and uh, a few others where you have both medical examiners and coroners. We've talked a little bit about the number of, of forensic pathologists that, that are out there uh, and how many are needed. How long does it take to train up someone to be a forensic pathologist? I'm saying if if I wanted to um, to move forward quickly, put lots of resources into this, it seems to me that there's not a, a fast solution. There's a lot of training involved, correct? There is not a fast solution, and that's part of the problem. An MD has had four years of pre-med, four years of medical school, and then they do a residency, which is typically four years in um, pathology. Uh, and then uh, the forensic pathology is, uh, you know, a year or two, uh, depending on the person, but it's, it's generally a year for the fellowship in uh, forensic pathology. So it's, it's 13 years. So even, yeah, if you decided today, you know, we're going to you know, turn on the spigot and train a whole bunch of forensic pathologists, they, they wouldn't be available to, you know, work in the market. Uh, it would be years, years down the road. Is some some work of forensic pathologists done by general pathologists just because of the, the general yes. need? Yes, not just general pathologists, but in parts of the country, uh, they're, they're not even pathologists. Um, in, in some states, uh, the you can a medical examiner could be a dentist, um, a chiropractor, or a veterinarian. Even uh, I, I, there are uh, EMTs who are doing this work, and emergency physicians, um, and uh, other specialties. But you know, they people communities have to do what they can uh, with the resources that they have. Walk me through. In autopsy, in general terms, how long does it typically take a forensic pathologist to perform an autopsy? Um, and, and what findings are needed before a body can be released or assistance used, so forth? Well, it, 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 interestingly, the, the process that happens at the medical examiner's office is very similar to what we undergo in a annual uh, physical examination or for a checkup. Um, the autopsies of physical examination, um, it, it's done early in the investigation, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's a very thorough head-to-toe examination inside and out. They look externally at the skin for any sort of um, uh, mark or bruise or a wound or anything that might be of significance, and everything is photographed and documented. Um, they do a very hair, you know, careful head to toe. Uh, they do the incision. Uh, all the organs are visually examined, palpated, weighed, measured, uh, and the brain. And um, they draw fluids for toxicology. Um, you know, when we go to the doctor, they do a checkup. Uh, they send us for, they do a urinalysis, we do some blood work, and then we'll do a chest x-ray, and then we'll see how you are. Uh, and, and they do that very same process. They'll, they'll do the x-rays, they'll do the urinalysis and the blood work. Um, those things take a bit more time. 
Um, and so um, it, it depends on the complexity of the case. It could be as, as you know, as on a fairly simple case, it could be, you know, two and a half, three hours um, on something that's more complex with the more complex injuries, because every injury needs to be measured and documented. Um, it could take longer, but um, uh, once that examination is done, once uh, all the specimens have been obtained, x-rays have been obtained, all the photographs, the examination is done, uh, that person's ready to go. They can go to the funeral home or crematory, whatever the family wants to do. And uh, it, 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 as soon as the examination is done, they're, they're ready to go. So at, at, at the OCME of Maryland, um, it's, it was typically within 24 hours or so. Within a day or two, they're ready to go. And is it centralized in Maryland that, that bodies are all brought to one location, or do you, do you have um, representatives of your office throughout the state? No, no. Well, we do have representatives in that we have forensic, I, I say we, I'm no longer employed by the office. They... Um, they have forensic investigators who are trained in, in each of the counties. Maryland has 23 uh, jurisdictions. They have trained people in that county who do the, the field investigation, uh, but there's one centralized facility throughout the state and one place where uh, it's very tightly vertically integrated. So there's one building where all the autopsies are, they have their own laboratory, they have their own histology, they keep the records there, the training is there, the offices are there. And so it, it, it makes it very easy to supervise and uh, uh, it's all contained right there in one place. So as we discussed this problem of um, demand surpassing supply, really, if you think about it in an economic terms with forensic pathologists and, and the need need for them i'm wondering is there can can technology help here is there any kind of way that technology can come to the rescue and and speed up the process like these virtual autopsies and um yeah it, it, there are some things along those areas that that i really think that there's no substitute for um and this is not my opinion. I mean, this is what I'm hearing from people that really, uh, you know, hands on seeing with your own eyes, there's really still no substitute for an examination like that. I, I don't know that the, that the technology is, is quite there yet. The, the solution, you know, what, what they've done in other areas is you, they've trained paraprofessionals to do this sort of thing. Um, and there are like graduate programs in forensic medicine. There's one at University of Maryland here. Um, the problem is that they, uh, one problem, one issue is that they're, they're not accepted as expert witnesses in court. Uh, judges want uh, an MD. They want somebody who's licensed and an independent uh, professional. And it, because even like, you know, a nurse or somebody else, they're working under somebody else's license. Um, so that is an issue to get them. Um, they're just not, they, they can't. Well, for one, the doctors don't want them. Uh, that's a threat to their livelihood. Um, and so they're not really enthusiastic about having joining, you know, having somebody, a, a paraprofessional in that role. Um, and uh, there's that resistance from the courts. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I, I really, I, I don't have an answer. If I knew, you know, what the solution was, uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's AI. I don't think it's technology. Um, I don't know. Is there a private option for families willing to to pay 
I mean, if so, it, it seems to create kind of a dual system of of justice. Um, if the forensic backlog just for poor and middle class folks? Well, um, a person can hire a pathologist to do an autopsy. The thing is that the, the law in Maryland and these other jurisdictions says that the medical examiner shall do an examination. The medical examiner is the, uh, you know, they, they are vested in that authority to determine the cause of manner or death in these circumstances. Uh, and so uh, I, I don't see how that could be privatized. And even if it were, there aren't the FPs to privatize it too. There just aren't the doctors. Um, so um, uh, typically these are, you know, these are all, they're, they're government uh, employees who do the, um, the forensic autopsy for the purpose of determining the cause and manner of death. So, um, you know, that's, that, that is put on, that authority to do that is put on the medical examiner. The epilogue to your, your forthcoming book, OCME, Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center, has some really heartbreaking stories of children missing, parents' funerals because body backlog. Uh, does any state statutorily limit the time a medical examiner can hold a body? Or can they just hold the, could the office just hold it as long as it needs to? Uh, I'm not aware of any such laws that, 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 uh, that do that, that require a medical examiner to release a body. Um, it, um, these delays are, are not uncommon. Um, you know, a, a really a cursory Google search will find that there's, there are delays uh, in autopsies and autopsy reports uh, in jurisdictions from coast to coast, but um, it, it's a terrible situation. And I mean, you, you, there's there's certain things you can't speed up. There at, at the OCME of Maryland, um, I don't want to give away spoilers, but they ended up developing a, a backlog, uh, and uh, there really isn't much you can do once you have that backlog. I mean, you you can't you can't be jumping people ahead of others and you know, that's not right. So you, you have to do it, you know, first come first served and, and, and you have to go through it. Um, I don't know any other way around it and things take what they take. There's only so much work one human can do in a day. Uh, and so what do you do with the rest of them? So bodies are handled in a chronological form first is, is people come in. There, there's no prioritization of we need this looks like it could be a victim of whatever and we want to prevent future crime so we're going to have this this body examined before the others is that they, fair they had to do that there were some cases where you know there is a uh, you know a high profile case you know homicide that you know had to be done because there's an active investigation and they're looking for somebody and they need the projectile at least you know something like that where they, there's a piece of evidence that they need for their investigation uh, but for the most part, they, they had to do it. The only fair thing to do was to, to do it first come, first serve. Um, and, and that's what they did in Maryland. I can't speak to other jurisdictions, what they do, whether they prioritize uh, likely homicides uh, over other cases or not. That's not fair because 
there's always going to be an, an urgent case and you can't keep, you know, if you prioritize the important ones, then the less important ones keep getting pushed back further and further and further. Uh, and, and, and that's no good. Does the delay ever result in uh, the inability to do a full examination? I mean, I'm wondering if, if bodies degrade while waiting to be autopsy. They do. Um, and, and there is decomposition. Uh, they're still able to do a, uh, an examination. But, I mean, certain findings, there is information that's lost, obviously, because there is, there is decomposition going on. Uh, coloration changes so there are some changes that go on they, they're losing some information while they're waiting i mean but they can they, they can still work with uh, what they have I mean, a medical examiner uh will can examine a body um that's uh, you know somebody who just died or you know a, a few days or moderately or severely decomposed or even skeletonized so no matter what you know where somebody is in that on that um spectrum continuum of decomposition, they'll still examine what they have. But obviously you would like to have the, you know, the, the, when it's, when it's new, when it's fresh, when all the information is still there, rather than let things go on and degrade and, and decompose and, and be lost. Are um, genetic information from uh, bodies that are autopsied, it, is that uploaded into any database to the best of your knowledge? Uh, not in Maryland, not that I'm aware of. Um, I, I, DNA um, is uh, typically used for uh, body identification. Uh, and in Maryland, uh, identification is done by the police, not by the medical examiner. Um, and other jurisdictions may do it differently. But um, we don't, uh, the OCME of Maryland did not retain uh, any anything like that. They retained uh, histology slides and those sorts of things, which could be used for a genetic screening. They keep a, uh, a blood card for DNA matching. Um, uh, they've been doing that since the early aughts uh, for every case, if they can get blood. Um, but it, it's not like, uh, you know, uploaded to any sort of database. They just keep literally a file drawer of the blood cards. And if a, if a request comes in for paternity testing, they can provide a sample. But uh, there's no data genetic data that's that's retained by the office and does the office ever get requests from researchers as to just general data let's say i'm a researcher and i'm looking at a certain uh area of of biology or medicine can i ask the office of chief medical examiner for general data they get requests a lot uh there there are a number of um Data are generated ongoing and they're provided to a number of different clients throughout the state. Maryland happens to have a very good data set uh, because it is a statewide agency. Uh, and uh, the OCME was established in 1939. So uh, uh, longitudinally from year to year, um, it's, it's the same people using the same definitions so cause and manner of death is, you know, fairly versus a state where to pick at random South Carolina, where they have a hundred counties, each county has, you know, three different uh, physicians over a period of years, you have hundreds of different doctors who have signed death certificates as medical examiners. And, and so, you, you know, the consistency uh, and how they, um, how they define things, uh, you know, could vary. Whereas 
Maryland, it's a very, very good data set. And, you know, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health has used it extensively for um, a lot of uh, studies and research and projects. And uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the whole, uh, uh, the, the, the Center for the uh, Trauma Injury Research and Policy at Johns Hopkins is, was drawn from the OCME data set. But uh, uh, it's been major contributions to public health that have come from uh, cause and manner of death data in, in Maryland. That's fascinating. And um, something that I guess we should view in a very positive, positive sense coming out of, uh, of the office, right? Well, if, if I, yes, I mean, I mean, as an example, uh, Susan Baker, who established the center at uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, using OCME of Maryland data, uh, she realized that uh, babies have a disproportionate risk of uh, death in car crashes. And it was her research at the OCME of Maryland that led to mandatory safety uh, seats throughout the country. So, you know, that sort of, you know, studying the data uh, leads to, you know, policies and changes that affect, uh, you know, many, many, many people. And they, uh, countless millions of people's lives have been touched and improved and saved because of um, public health folks at Johns Hopkins using the OCME of Maryland data. Bruce, our, our time together is almost up, but in our remaining moments, please talk about your, your forthcoming book, OCME, Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center. Who's the book written for? Why should people read it? Give us a little bit of an overview. Well, you know, I, honestly, you know, I had been in journalism for many, many years. Uh, and and before I uh, started at the OCME, I only had a vague sense of what the medical examiner does. Like most people, um, I like the TV shows, uh, forensic science, and true crime is just hugely popular and television and books and podcasts and you name it. Uh, and But there's a lot of misconceptions uh, from the TV shows. And, um, uh, you know, people, I, I got asked a lot. Um, you know, what's it like to work there? And what, what is your day like? And, you know, those sorts of things. So, you know, the, what I want, the OCME, because it is a, a well-known uh, and the first statewide system, it has this, um, this background to it, this history uh, that is uh, significant. And so what I wanted to do was to create a portrait and show people what it's like uh, and to, to explain the day-to-day -day and, um, and uh, introduce the people who are who work there and what they do and what the work really involves and how things you know what it's like to work in a forensic medical center. Um, as it happened, it went through these crises, so um, you know there is uh, there is that going on. Uh, but really, just to demystify um, forensic medicine and to uh, shine a light and explain how things really really work in, in a place like that. I have to say it's a fascinating read, and I highly recommend it to 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 our audience. My guest has been Bruce Goldfarb. His forthcoming book is OCME: Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center. Bruce, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Bruce Goldfarb for his time and insights. His book is OCME. Life in America's Top Forensic Medical Center. I highly recommend it to you. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership 
for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, but man Robin went for kapow.